Hi there and welcome to Scale, a podcast for modern media. I am your host Stuart Ritchie, the founder and lead developer at Powered by Coffee. Powered by Coffee is a web and software development team focusing on technology issues facing the media today. Scale is a podcast about how technology impacts the media and how the media impacts technology in return. Everything from ad tech and privacy to hosting and content management. We're interested in what's happening today, what's happening tomorrow and where we might end up in the future. Today we have Heather Flanagan, the principal and owner at Spherical Cow Consulting. Spherical Cow kind of puts itself out there with the kind of tagline, translating geek into human. Is that it, Heather? Translating mm-hmm. geek into human. And today specifically, we're going to talk about more identity on the web, particularly federated identity, which Heather is somewhat of an expert of. Heather, rather than me try and sum you up early, why don't you tell us about yourself, tell us about Spherical Cow and tell us why you're here today. Sure. So... Digital identity is is one of the big things that I, I get to, to work on, and I love it. It's great. It, it just touches on absolutely everything. And But it's not like what I, I thought I was going to be when I grew up. I thought I was going to be a librarian. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually what my master's degree in is. I, was, I have a master's in library science. I can't say library science, but I'm similar. I never thought I would be here. I went through wanting to be a chef working in forensics. My degree is in physiology. So I know well what it is to transition into technology from something very different. But that's cool. So you mentioned standards there and standards around identity. You know, how did how did you get into that? How do you go from library sciences into into that? Well, the it it blamed the glory of the dot com era, really, in the mid nineties, you know, it was all exploding at the time and there was, it was new. So nobody, you know, very few people actually had a degree in practical computer science. Theoretical, sure, lots of those, but practical, no. So when I graduated, I went to work for a local newspaper, which was just spinning up an ISP because everybody was spinning as, up an as ISP. You do. As you do. And within a few months, they're like, okay, you seem to be reasonably bright. Could you run our bulletin board system? And I said, well, sure, does, does it come with a book, a manual, something to give me some guidance as to what I'm supposed to do? And uh, they said, yep, hand me the manual to the Galacticom BBS. And I became their bulletin board systems operator. And that lasted all of two months, at which point they said, so we have this this thing called DNS. Could you just manage that system for us? And I'm like, does it come with a book? So they hand me the cricket book from O'Reilly. And I'm like, great. One more month passed. They're like, hey, send mail. I said, just give me the book. Just just give me the book. And that's kind of how I ended up like flowing into tech. And unfortunately, I've never quite made my way back out again. Is, is there a, a latent desire there to move back, back out? I know there's a lot of folk dream about well, starting woodworking or taking up farming. <laughs> so not, not exactly. I mean, when I first was flowing into tech, I'm like, you know, it won't be too bad. If it, I know everybody gets burned out in this field. And if it gets really bad, I can just go back to being a librarian. And then libraries went high tech and it's really no different. So there's there's just kind of no escape. Spoiler. At home, I, I, I once described myself as very Gemini because I travel the world constantly going to conferences and standards meetings and meeting with clients. Between now and June, I'm going to Amsterdam, San Francisco, um, back Berlin, Atlanta, Las Vegas, Albania, and back to San Francisco. Oh wow! Right? It's, That's quite the all the all the, the travel, all the tech. At home, I have 
three spinning wheels, a weaving loom, <laughs> a basement full of fiber, an orchard in the back of 30 trees. So it's like, there's nothing in the middle. I'm either the nicest prepper you're ever going to meet, or I'm this high-tech jet setter. And there's there's no middle ground. That's awesome. That's great. So then, I mean, let's let's bring a step back then, back into the kind of technology stuff. So obviously, dealing with the BBS, DNS, SendMail, all very foundational pieces, kind of of our our modern internet, often pieces thing people don't talk about. So how do you, how do we get from there to identity and standards? From there, you get you get to identity and standards because once you're actually administering systems and services, you can't, especially the identity component, you can't avoid it. Because the, the, the single most important thing to do is to control access to the system or to specific, you know, to specific things on the system. I mean, that's, that's foundationally like the entire job of an administrator is to control access. Well, how do you do that? You do that by identity, by figuring out, well, who, who is supposed to be on the system and how are they logging into the system and what do I actually need to know about them? All that, you know, those gory details may change depending on your industry, right? If you are in finance, you have, you know, the know your customer legal requirements. I think those are pretty common from one country to the next, the next, the next. And so they're going to collect certain kind of information about you, whereas a, a library will collect different information about you and your scholarly publishers. You know, they actually don't want that much information about you. They just want to know who you're affiliated with and, and all that changes, but it all comes into the, the complexity of digital identity. And then digital identity standards, I, I believe you're doing some work with W3C to help oh, define. I, I, I collect standards like Pokemon. Uh, but, uh, you have to gen it now. Yeah, I, I do. So for eight years, I was actually the publisher for the RFC series, which is what the IETF and the IAB and, you know, so it's like the core standards series for the internet. And yeah, I got to, I got to deep dive into exactly how that particular sausage is made. As part of that, I got to experience a lot with the W3C as an invited expert. And today I'm still working with the W3C because I'm a community group chair and the community group is for federated identity. I actually spun the community group up. I thought they needed it. Yeah. So federated identity, for those that don't know, what does, what does that mean? How is that different from, you know, just your normal login is like, I am who I say I am with this token. How does federated identity work? Tell us about it's, that. It's a question of, is that is that information local to the thing you're, we'll, we'll say, we'll just use logging in as, as the example. You know, is, is does the system hold your record of who you are and your your password or other authentication credentials, or are they getting that information from a third party? Sure. So you'll see this if you're from, everybody is pretty familiar with the consumer web, which is dominated by Google, Facebook, Twitter logins, where you'll go to a site like the times and you want to log in and you can create a local account, or you could say, would you like to just log in with your Google ID? Sure. That if you would like to log in with this third party thing is, is at its base federated identity. Okay, great. But I imagine then there are also like other, other takes on that. I mean, you mentioned universities there. Oh, yeah. Universities often will have 
and please let me know if I'm completely off on the wrong tangent, but like access to, you know, libraries of journals from particular publishers that you don't have to log into, but as long as you're on that network, it's still giving you access to those. Is that very much the same realm? Yes. Yes. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> the, so the consumer web has like the four major identity, they're called identity providers. But once you get into academia, research, and education, every university just about has their own identity provider. And this is, this is like fundamentally necessary because, again, what, what the journals want to know when someone logs in, they don't want to know that you're Stuart Ritchie. They want to know that you are, in fact, a student at London College. It's all they actually want to know about you. They don't want to know. They, the less the less personal information they can collect, actually, the happier they are these days. Because if they have it, they are responsible for it. And they get in trouble if anything goes wrong. It's so much better if they can just collect the minimal information that they that they have to in order to succeed. Absolutely. That makes so sense. if you're on a, on a campus and actually physically in the library and physically touching, you know, their network, well, physically... You can always do Wi-Fi, but you get the idea. There is a way for people to be able to access the material where they don't have to log in at all. Their identity, completely irrelevant. It's the the, uh, IP address of your your computer, which you've now gotten from being on campus. And the system says, oh, you're from that IP address range? Yeah, we know you. We know you. You're fine. You're just just access. And that's the, the most seamless way things work. It's usually problematic, mind you, in many respects, because for one thing, I've actually spoken with the people who developed the IP protocol because standards, right? And yeah. that was one of the, the early standards, like from, I, I forget, late late 70s, early 80s, published by the IETF in, in the RFC series. And so I've spoken to these people and said, do you realize how this is being used? And they yeah. were appalled. This is not what that that was actually designed for in any way, shape, or form. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is just how people are now in terms of where they are in the world when they're actually trying to access. Are you at at the local coffee shop? You know, how many people actually study in the library? There's not enough room in the library or on campus to necessarily have everybody study there at one time. So that's, that's problematic too. And there's, there's ways around it. You can always, you know, make sure, remember to set up your VPN or make sure you go through the library portal, but even those have some some flaws to it of, okay, if you've gone to the library portal, how do you bookmark? You know, I want to come back to this article. This one's what's important to my research. And then you leave campus or something like that. And it's just, it becomes really untidy. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that being, I mean, it's, it's amazing that it works. It's one of those kind of like, to me, there are certain things that like historical things. I'm like, I don't believe that this still works. It's too... Mm-hmm too basic and yet works so well when it does work it does now it's also under threat now this is going to transition a little bit into some of what we're dealing with in the digital identity landscape is especially with federated identity is looking to change because of what the browser manufacturers are requiring Apple has, you know, they they take the stance of, you know, being one of the more privacy preserving browsers out there and some of their services, they said, you know, all right, how, how are people tracked on the web? Because that's, that's bad. 
We don't want we don't want tracking to happen. How do how do we avoid that? Well, one of the ways people are tracked is by their IP address. Especially yeah. when you look at the consumer web, which is what drives the the big decisions for the browsers because it's the biggest we'll call it market. Apple has said, "You know what? We don't like that. That's a bad model because you can track people by their IP address." And so they've started obfuscating it or, you know, up-leveling it or, you know, otherwise changing it in ways that now the, oh, we recognize that IP address as being an arranged for a university doesn't work as consistently as it used to. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. So that's, is it Private Relay is the Apple program in question where it's a, you know, effectively a very, I don't want to say VPN because I don't think that's quite it, but more of like a, a, a layer that you kind of proxy yes. through from Apple to like. Yes. There, um, now there's things that university network administrators can do to signal Apple. Please don't do that to us. Please, yeah. please don't. But they first they have to actually know about it, which is challenging because while, you know, we can talk about the university as if it's one entity, once you actually dive into it, the librarians don't necessarily know who the network people even are on their campus. That's not a conversation that's typically going to happen. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that being a problem. But I think then let's maybe move this down a layer away from kind of like institutional identity into kind of consumer identity. I mean, we're starting to talk about consumer browsers anyway. So how, obviously there's going to be big changes in how identity is handled, particularly shared identity using these federated services, primarily because of cookie changes and other privacy related changes that are kind of coming with browsers how do you how do we feel that is going to impact online experience how do you think we're going to get around that etc i think the so let's talk a little little bit about what the what the changes are to make sure everybody's on the same page with that so third-party cookies those are little bits of information stored in the user's browser memory or local disk, whatever, stored in the browser that gives some information about what the user is doing. And it's third party because it is set by one domain, you know, explicitly to be read by anybody and anything. And so other domains can look at that and, and make a decision or record a piece of information or whatnot. It's, it's traditionally a great way to track people. And what they're doing, have have an ad network, drop a little cookie on there, and then they know every site you, you go to and exactly the path you take to get there and what you're actually looking at and maybe how much time you're spending on any one thing. Of course. Well, it's that's and, and that's generally con- considered less than ideal from a privacy perspective. Absolutely. Third-party cookies, however, are also used to say something like, yes, this user logged in to this site. And for a larger publisher that has multiple related domains, they need to have it as a third-party cookie because, you know, that will take, you know, the big, the big, big monster Elsevier. Elsevier has hundreds of domains. Of course. Right? And they can't, they don't, traditionally you don't set a single, you know, you don't make someone log in for every single domain. You say, yes, this person actually logged into Elsevier. Now that's valid for all of these journals. That's under threat it already doesn't work particularly well in safari and in fact you know there's there's lots of pieces of software that don't work particularly well in safari anymore and which the answer had been oh yeah hmm, i just don't use safari 
It wasn't let's fix it. It was just just go to another browser. We'll just pretend that never happened. Fair enough. So then, I, yeah. So to I guess to like make that a little bit more, just to restate it, so it makes your eye understand. You know, someone goes to Elsevier, one of their brands, all of which escape me at the moment, and they log in and they're logged into that site. The ideal user experience would be they go to a second brand, different journal, say, and they're still logged in because it's it's a centralized ID. It's the same login information that they're going to use. With a kind of how digital identity with third-party cookies would work, like, great, we have you know a generic domain, read the cookie from that domain that says, yeah, you are logged in, here is the ID and a token that we can check to be like, yeah, you are who you say you are. Mm-hmm. But because those third-party cookies are no longer going to be readable for privacy's sake to get away from you know, all the tracking that is done, this is going to hugely impact publishers, whether news media or scholarly's ability to say, like, this user is definitely this user, definitely who they say they are. And either the upside of that is either badge UX, because you're not going to have to log in again, mm-hmm. or, you know, just kind of suck it up and find other ways to try and and deal with that that don't involve a third-party cookie. Is that about, about a summary about it. of it? That's about it. This impacts some of the basic protocols that are used to log in. OpenID Connect is definitely has some aspects of it in, impacted by mm-hmm. the, the loss of third-party cookies. One of the more, from, from my perspective, one of the more critical things that gets lost is what's called front-channel logout. Okay, I don't know what that is. It basically means that when you go to a system and say, okay, I want to log out now. Mm-hmm. Well, it can't necessarily do that because if it's a third party, it's like, well, you can't just wipe that out. That, that's just, that's just not going to work. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's alternatives to how to log out. There's, there's the front channels. That's just something the user can see and control. And there's back channel where servers are talking to servers, but you can't use there there are two different ones for reasons and they're yeah. not one to one replacements so the the issue of thing, things like front channel logout and well how do you actually still enable that that's some of the work that i'm involved in with the w3c and the federated identity community group where google has proposed a an api called the fedcm uh, okay. sort of stands for federation federated credential management and trying to all all the browser really wants to do is say user do you are you really okay with what's about to happen here i know you clicked the login button but are you actually okay for the site that you're on the journal actually going to a, an identity provider are are you really okay with that sure in the past the browser didn't care Right. The browser was completely passive to all of this and just let information flow back and forth. It was not an active party in any transaction. Because the browser vendors are being held accountable to, you know, you, you browser vendor must do something to deal with privacy and the tracking issues and everything. You have to. GDPR is like the biggest stick in the, in the house yeah, uh, demanding that. So. They're like, all right, well, in order for us to actually do something about it, we actually now have to step up and become an active player in in the entire workflow. 
it's challenging because the protocols that they are now getting in the middle of were not designed for that. We're not designed for anything to get in the middle because that's like security failure. You don't want yeah. a thing in the middle when you're dealing with secure cookies going back and forth. Absolutely. It's hard enough with, I, I, to me, I think the closest analogy is something like CORS, C-O-R-S, mm -hmm. cross-origin resource security. I've forgotten what the acronym stands for. But it's this browser thing getting in the middle to try and verify like, is this a domain that you should be accessing or has something gone wrong? You know, it's a very, that's the closest thing I can think of to it. So, I mean, a few, a few of the standards are, you mentioned something, OpenID Connect. Are you able to give us like a quick rundown on that just for anyone listening that doesn't know it? I actually don't know how to do that. It is very complicated. <laughs> because it's, it's actually like a, a very big, very robust authorization protocol yes. yeah. it's built on top it comes out of the open id foundation and it is one of the most popular protocols out there for this kind of this kind of thing of uh, that's when when you're clicking on the login with google or login with uh, facebook or login with apple you're basically relying on that protocol to make the login happen of course now how does it do it magic Absolutely. That's fair. It is, it is complicated. I know it involves a lot of, I, I come at it kind of from knowing a little bit about kind of the OAuth side. So like mm -hmm. sends off this request, that requests a token, gets the token back for it, sends the token again. It's all kinds of like complicated, but that's if you kind of know the two sides where the, right. the open federation, not open federation. I have, I have a whole, a whole rant that we're not going to yeah. get into. It's that point of this call about how difficult it is to, you know, I knowing the standards exist is one thing, but then, you know, when we talk about open, I can deconnect as an example, it's a family of standards with lots of different subcomponents and actually having a roadmap to know what all those components are and when you would want to use them. That's not actually something that really exists in the world today. Yeah, Most standards to have that same problem of, you know, yeah. they're usually families of standards and getting any kind of roadmap is really hard so do we want to go back to talk about cookies a little bit sure yeah, so the, the the cookies are so as they're going away some of the things that i've heard people say are you know when i when i've presented to you know an audience of here are some of the changes that you can expect coming out of browser land i i was referred to the chipper voice of fear uncertainty and doubt because there's all these changes and all these different apis that are sort of being thrown in the mix and executives commonly say look this is this is great can you just tell me what we need to do and when we need to do it by ultimately that's, that's what we need to know what what is the change and when does it happen? Because then I can allocate my resources to actually do something. Sure. I would love to be able to answer that question. Of course. I can't, unfortunately. Nope. From my perspective, I, I look at it from another way of, do you want to be told what to do? Or would you like to actually have a chance to influence what you're going to be told to do so that maybe it's not as burdensome? later of course because i'm i'm into standards development i think that's the most sensible thing but but executives who are trying to contain research and development to a constrained space and not just pour money into it they struggle with this right now as to what what are we supposed to do yeah okay that makes that makes sense i think you can even go a step further where 
you know, these, you know, kind of big organizations that are already involved kind of in the standards process, it's hard enough for them to, you kind of have to be there day one, but you know, there are a lot of kind of media orgs out there and there are media orgs, just any SME who has a technology side to it that needs to manage identity. How are they going to be able to, to cope, to know what to do? Because like you say, it's not easy to, to listen not listen. It's not easy to find out exactly what's going to happen and be prepared. And I think traditionally too, it's hard for those groups to feel represented in the standards because it's so hard to, you know, justify the time right. to contribute to that unless it is something that that business is like kind of founded around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still incredibly important work that that everybody needs to to chip into. But it's yeah. it can be hard to justify. It um, can, and and that's not. You know, that's not a decision anyone can make for them. I mean, yeah. they, it's it's really hard to know what you have to know. You know, how yeah. are you going to be told? Well, it's not like Google can reach out to every person on the planet. I mean, if you're not following Google's changes, you know, if you're not aware of the, the Canary program of how they, you know, that's like their alpha alpha yeah. program for Chrome you know, then, or if you're not actually watching their privacy sandbox.com effort, if you're not, if you're not actually looking, they can't reach out to you and tell you they can't, they, they can't quite, they've been shouting this out to the world for years, but yeah. it's, it's hard to get the message to the right people at the right time. Of course. Makes complete sense. What about, what about user land? So the end users of kind of all the products that this work integrates to, are we expected to see kind of significant changes for them and how things are approached? Or is it even still too early to tell how this is going to pan out? Oh, the poor end users. I feel so badly for them because, because of the demands that they, the end user must be protected. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. Okay. Well then, what does that take? It means now that like every single technology partner involved has to take a little bit of ownership and say, I, I've asked the user, you know, I'm, I'm, I care, I'm doing something. Well, suddenly that means it's, it's like the, the cookie banners. And now the end users are just going to be pummeled. Everybody's asking them, are you okay? What about now? Or now, now is this good? Now is good. What about now? Yeah. You know, it's, it's really going to be annoying <laughs> yeah. because, because you know, the browsers have to ask, are you okay with this? The service, the, you know, in our case, the publishers have to ask, are you okay with this? The place where they're getting the, the identities from say, you know, when you're logging into Google, you're going to have a window. Are you okay with this? It's click, click, click. Could you just let me get to the thing I'm trying to get to? Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of jump troops. I think the cookie banner is a good analogy there. I hadn't considered because that is a that is a thing that needs a better solution. Um, but I mean, and it's one of these things too, where like our traditional markers of like identity of like this person is who they say. So you get your username, password, fine, and then we move on to like token bases of like I've got a second factor where it's your device and stuff like that. That's fine for me and you who are kind of probably accustomed to being asked continually for two-factor codes and know enough about how it works to not default to the easy SMS and have an authenticator app and stuff like that. But how how is it 
Joe or Jane Doe on the street just using their, their Chromebook or their Android phone, supposed to have any idea what's happening and why? A few years ago, I was, I was having fun with a, a little side project that I called Identity Flash Mob where I was basically going out to social media. I did a lot on Instagram and things like that, trying to get people aware of different changes and things that were happening. And what I discovered was that people did not want to know. You know, they, they, they do not want to have to care about this. And it's, so we've got very competing demands and requirements. There's what, you know, on the one hand, people... People want to, you know, have their privacy protected. On the other hand, they want the convenience of getting to the thing they need to get to. And they actually might even have a different perspective as to, well, what does privacy even mean? That's not a term that actually has a clear definition. It's, it's a contextual definition. And the context includes things like, how old are you? What generation are you coming from? Because you probably think of this very differently from your grandparents. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting idea. It was, I was listening to something recently as well. It was kind of like, so I'm, I'm a Mac user. I think you are too. You know, like if you log into an Apple service through Safari even, and it sends you a two-factor code of like that pops up on your screen and it has always done my head in. I'm like, I am logging in on this device but I'm in a browser. Mm-hmm. Why, why are you showing me this second code that I need to enter? And it only became aware that it's Apple don't trust their own browser to be like, this person is who they say they are. Mm-hmm. It's that it runs in a separate, separate track to identify. So even though you could be sat at the same device doing that login, but to an, I've had that explained to me and it makes sense to me to an average person. It's just like, this is broken. Why is, why is this broken? Why is this so much harder now than it used to be? And I also, I can continue to come back. Like I want my, I want my data protected to not be shared out unless I stipulate who gets that. Most people don't care. They're like, what, why does that matter? I've had long conversations with people about the presence of microphones in their homes that are attached to, you know, various databases of things and i'm like if you talk in your home about how you had covid unless you are internally aware of the terms and service of that microphone to connect it to the internet where does that information end up mm-hmm. is that going to be purchasable by someone in the future of right. a profile of you and that's a, like an extreme example it's but an it's, extreme example but it's not an unusual example yeah. and Another another little spin to put on this is, of course, the people who are developing these services and manufacturing these devices and coming up with these protocols, they have a global market. Of course. They cannot say, I'm not going to sell in these countries, like China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll say it, like China. And there, the culture is wildly different. In terms of the requirements and the expectations. And so they kind of have to be able to to be all things to all people in all the different contexts that, that privacy is considered for that area. It's it's an incredibly hard problem to solve. No two ways about it. And 
the balance of security and convenience, or in this case, privacy and convenience, mm-hmm. is going to be one that at best, you know, can we can we get it right enough of the time that even if we've irritated users, we've actually still protected them. Do you feel like there's something else that we need to be be aware of? Like with kind of the deprecation of third-party cookies, obviously that impacts identity, that then in turn impacts advertising and, you know, general data collection. Right. Do, do you feel like there's more places that that's going to impact that we haven't, that you know, me as a technical person maybe haven't thought of yet, not being at the top level of that? I would say if anyone that's running a um, a service that has a lot of different frames in it, so this could be like the, the most common example that many people will be familiar of is like Microsoft Teams. Sure. That's, you know, master, master service and then, you know, lots of different applications underneath. Learning management systems at universities, those are, are another pretty common example that some will be familiar with. You know, those are going to, those are going to struggle. From, from when working in a browser and the people who develop them basically have kind of two choices. They can either turn it into a single page application, which isn't necessarily a good decision because yeah. then it suddenly gets really yeah. slow, really clunky. All this stuff has to load in the background. It's a mess, yeah. but becomes a single domain or develop apps, you know, dedicated apps where you're not going to even try it through a browser. You're going to try it through the application on your system. Sure. The cookie thing is just the start. It's actually okay. as complicated as it is. That's the uh, the most tractable of the problems in the space. Okay. Going forward, you know, over the next several years, because this is this is multi year time frame we're looking at. They also yep. have to look at you know when you go to your browser, you've clicked on a link in email from a business, and it opens mm-hmm. up in the browser, and it has you know domain dot com slash service slash or service question mark utm equals method blah 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 stuff yeah that's tracking yep well that's not gonna fly for long is it you know because you got to prevent tracking unfortunately that's also where you put like identity tokens and things like that that's going to be an even bigger impact than third-party cookies they don't know how they're going to solve for it yet they being the browser vendors, because from their perspective, they can't tell the difference. Sure. Um, but they know that that's another common way to be tracked, and they're going to have to do something. So yeah, of course. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. And there's a couple I've... of things. If you can think of it as as a you know a thing to be used for tracking, then the browser vendors are going to be considering how can we do something different. How can we make this not usable for tracking while still preserving the functionality of the web. Of course. So I think then the always jump up point for that is a technique called fingerprinting, where you're not identifying the user with a cookie. You are looking at traits that are on on that device. Yep. And then assigning that to like this is this user. Um, mm-hmm. And there are terrifying numbers of things that are available to a fingerprinting application to try and work out. Yeah. Is this the same person that was here a few moments ago. Not so useful for authentication, but certainly useful from identity of this is a person we are tracking. Right. And all that goes into a database, which in turn feeds what ads you see. And those ads can be ads for shoes. Those mm-hmm. ads can be ads for extremist political parties. You know, there's no there's no control over that. 
absolutely yeah it's crazy how how are they going to block fingerprinting because it's there there are efforts to try and do that i don't remember the the particular project that's trying to minimize the amount of data that's going across in in a fingerprint because right now it's it's everything it's what fonts do you prefer what add-ons do you have what themes are you using what IP address are you coming from? Screen size, all of those color depth, details. Yes, all those user details. agents. There's a site. I wish I could remember what it is that you could, if, if you actually start googling browser fingerprinting, that you can go to and ask how unique is my browser, and it'll tell you right. how uniquely identifiable you are just from the browser you're using. I know I'm very uniquely identifiable because of I've got the turn turn this off turn that off i want this particular theme so that i have a little cat eye looking at me you know it's all those sure. things i'm completely identifiable from my browser the one that, and there are scary ones what fonts never what fonts you prefer what fonts you have installed because mm-hmm. there are so many fonts that effectively it is a, a unique fingerprint in and of itself yep and they, they, I remember there used to be a very scary technique where the fingerprinting tool would open a html canvas element print out lots and lots and lots of domain names to it. And then use CSS default styling to say, have you been to this link? Because you can't get in the browser like, does this exist in history? Have they been here? That's not an API that exists. At least it wasn't at the time. But there'll be different colors. So it would then do color analysis to say, this user has been to this domain, this domain, this domain, this domain. And then use that as part of the fingerprint. Yep, yep. But it's it's all crazy. So for things that if if they had to narrow down what they were looking at, publishers probably should pay attention to the, there's a couple groups within the W3C that if, if even if you only lurk there, you'll at least get some sense of what's happening. One they'll probably be very much interested is the private advertising group. There's right. actually two. There's a community group, which is free for anybody to join. Cool. And then there's a private advertising working group which you have to be a member of the W3C to join. There's also my community group, which is the Federated Identity Community Group Great. that meets every Monday, 8 a.m. 8 a. Pacific time, except for those, you know, once a month, we try and shift it to be more friendly to Pacific time zones. Great. So. Absolutely. And then is there anywhere else people can learn? Obviously, W3C and those working groups, community groups, great place to start anywhere else that Honestly, those those are the best places I can think of. You can certainly follow me on LinkedIn because Great. I am regularly speaking about this. I, I've lost track of just how many webinars and conference sessions Great. that I've presented to. And I always um, announce them on LinkedIn to say, hey, I'm going to be here. I'm going to do this. If there's a recording, I make the recording available. If people want slides, happy to give them slides. If people would find it useful to have me present in their organization, I do that too. You know, it's like anything I can do to get the word out. So LinkedIn, anywhere else people can can follow you and find out more about your work and how, if they wanted you to come talk at their organization, how they could do that. Well, there's also the website, sphericalcowconsulting.com that you can yeah. you can see what's going on. You can see the the blog posts that I have. This is my personal blog post of what I see happening in the industry or things that I care about as a freelancer, because at the end of the day, I am a freelancer and uh, I work for many different organizations, but it all comes back to how can I personally make the internet better when I'm a, I'm, I'm basically a librarian. I'm not, I'm not a techie. I'm not, uh, I don't write code. <laughs> so Techies. what can someone like me do? 
And that's, that's like my entire career is built on that question. It's a, it's a good question. Being being a techie is overrated. There are many, 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 many more ways to contribute from like policy, from an understanding, from a kind of like what what is the good this is doing and is this actually a good thing to do that we have been sorely missing for the last two decades. I wish more I people think. understood that. <laughs> I'm like, I just, with all the kind of like Web3 stuff kind of floating around, I'm like, I just really wish we could go back to the wild the wild west of the web where everything was open, everything tended to chaos, everything was decentralized by default. There was no no sort of idea to build scarcity and have tokens to sell. It was like, no, it's on the web. It is free and open. Have at it. But sorry, I'm going to get off my high horse. <laughs> the internet is, the thing is, is internet, the technologies underlying it, you know, it's there. They represent everything that humanity represents, all the positives and all the negatives. So when you have a wild, wild west like that, you have the ultimate in innovation and you have also the ultimate in threat. Unfortunately, just kind of like the rest of my life, there's nothing in the middle. Work at the extremes, I like it. One last question. I know you've got a lot of speaking events coming up all around the world. Do you have any that are publicly accessible if anyone wanted to find out more or anything else you'd like to direct people to? Sure. So... Okay, if you're really interested in the digital identity space, the one conference I I'm going to be attending, hopefully I'll be speaking at, I've, I've put in some submissions, we will see. I highly recommend you look to Identiverse. Identiverse. Uh, Identiverse. That is, that is like the best identity industry conference in the world, I think. And this year it's going to be held in Las Vegas at the end of May. Awesome. If you can't make it all the way over to Las Vegas, the European Identity Cloud Conference is in Berlin the first week of May and might also be something of interest great thank you so much for your time i really enjoyed it and speak soon i'm sure hopefully have a great day great thank you thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode uh, please subscribe scale is available in all usual podcast places even better uh, if you could leave us a review that really helps us if you're interested in finding out more about me or powered by coffee you can find us on social media and again, in all the usual places, links are in the show notes. Scale is currently going to kind of come out every two weeks and we will see you then.